Hey lovelies, before we really get into things, a quick bit of information that is not nearly as important as what we're going to be talking about today, but still needs to be said. The black and teal flutter dresses are now available at impactfashionnyc.com. These are the two newest colors of my best-selling summer staple piece. The flutter dress has a soft gathered neckline, a flutter sleeve with a built-in shelf for elbow coverage, and a soft flared skirt. The whole dress is made of a cotton gauze and lined with soft jersey. It literally feels like wearing your favorite t-shirt. And yes, even in black, it's still a soft and light and floaty piece. Learn more and shop sizes 2 through 24 at impactfashionnyc.com. Now on to the important stuff. This episode is the third in a four-part series exploring domestic abuse and abusive divorce practices in the Orthodox Jewish community. The episodes each stand alone and do not need to be listened to in the order that I release them. However, if you missed last week's conversation with Dr. Shauna Friedman or the one before it with Batya Reyes, I do recommend that you give them a listen at some point. Together, all four of these conversations provide a really full look at this issue. With all of the movement that has been happening to help Agunot, I got to thinking about the bigger picture issues that create these problems. We know that an Aguna, a woman unable to get out of a marriage because her husband will not grant her a divorce, is never created in a vacuum. Get refusers are abusers, and refusing to grant the get is not the first type of abusive behavior they exhibit. The goal of this series is to zoom out and explore the issues. We'll get first world perspectives, talk about prevention, and examine what the Jewish divorce process is like and where it can and does go wrong. If at any point during listening to this series, you find yourself relating to anything being discussed, you recognize it a pattern in your own relationships or maybe those of a friend or family member, I urge you to reach out for help. You deserve to be treated properly and you deserve to be safe. The National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE and Shalom Task Force can be reached at 718-337-3700. You can also text or WhatsApp Shalom Task Force at 888-883-2323. Both services are free. Both are completely confidential and open 24-7. Both are available to listen if you believe there might be a problem. There are many types of abuse and there doesn't need to be a black eye for a relationship to be abusive. If you are concerned that your internet or phone usage may be monitored, please take extra precautions like using private mode, frequently clearing your browser history, and saving the hotline numbers in your phone under a generic name. With the sincerest hope that you never need it and that those who already do or will are truly listening, let's get to the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with the CEO of Ora Agunot about the Jewish divorce process. We discuss why it's so hard to count the number of Agunot, how our own lack of knowledge around the Basin system contributes to this problem, conquering the ick factor around halachic prenups, and what these highly effective documents actually say. When it comes to this whole issue of domestic abuse and how it plays out in the Jewish court system, a lot of the work has been around things we can do to prevent men from becoming get refusers. And that's important. But what is much more appealing to me are things we can do to protect ourselves. And that's where the halachic prenup comes in. Champions by Ora, the organization Keshet Start runs, these documents have the ability to end this crisis. I had to know more. To start off, can you tell me what you were like as a little kid? 
love that question. I did not stop talking and I like to sort of sing and make up stories and I guess do a lot of sort of imagination and read books, which I still love to do. So yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing, a good book is, that's, I mean, that's the best the escape, best. The, the best. Um, everyone probably knows you as the um, founder of Ora of Ora Agunot, which is an organization that, um, that helps with Agunot and, is, and you're a really big advocate of the halachic prenup. What I'd love to know and what I don't know about you until I was you know, kind of looking into you before this um, interview is that you're also a lawyer. So I, what made you decide to, to be a lawyer? What made you decide to, to go down that path and how did that lead you to Ora? Such a good question. So I was an English major who loved to read books again and had no idea what I wanted to do. And I ended up debating law school or academia. I wasn't sure which way I wanted to go. And I chose law school because I thought it was intellectually interesting, but also had an ability to really impact people's lives, which is not to say that academics can't impact anyone's lives, but there's something very direct about law and dealing with vulnerable communities and being able to make a change. And so that's how I got interested in law. And as a law student, actually, I decided to do a random internship my first summer. So I interviewed with domestic abuse agencies. And one agency mentioned that they had just gotten this grant to work on abuse in the Orthodox community. And I had never even thought about there being abuse in the Orthodox community, but I thought that was interesting. And so I did that for my summer internship and I was really hooked. There was something very powerful about working in the community that I was also part of. And it really, I don't know, it really touched me. And I really felt like I had kind of found my professional home. And so it was still a, a hop, skip and a jump from there to Ora. I'm not actually the founder, but I took it over from a, a number of great people who really thought of the idea and got it going. And eventually kind of found my way to focusing more specifically on the get. When, when a lot of people think of law school, I mean, and when I certainly think of like lawyers, I think of like suits and, and like the, uh, what was the Harvey, whatever his name, Harvey Specter. There you go. Um, and like, and that whole world of like very high rolling, big back secret room deals, that kind of thing. I don't really think of people who are out to help other people. Were you an anomaly in your law school class? In my law school class, I was. Now, I will say I went to Penn, which is an expensive law school, and most people are going the, the big law, we call it, route afterwards in order to pay back their loans. And then a few years down the line are choosing a variety of things. But there are so many law schools out there that really are emphasizing public interest work. And what I think what you realize is that if you've ever been involved in a legal proceeding, even if you got into a car accident and you have to go to court over it, it's really scary. And anytime I've had to be part of a legal proceeding as a participant, even though I am a lawyer, it's still terrifying. There's a real vulnerability no matter where along the process you are. And there's also a huge diversity around what lawyers do. I think that we all think of suits and you know the giant skyscrapers and the high heels. And there are people who do that. My husband's a corporate lawyer, so I, I see that work world every day, but there are so many other worlds that you can be part of and they don't all make the same salary. So that's, that's the caveat, but there really are so many interesting things that you can do. 
what was it about the like what was it about the internship that you did in that domestic abuse shelter that really drew you to that work I felt such a commonality with the people I was helping. I really felt like they could be me. They could be any of my friends, any of the people that I know. And it was very interesting summer because this was my first summer of law school. I actually got engaged that summer. I was the only person on the project that was Orthodox. So everyone else was like, oh my gosh, you're 23 and engaged and the only relationships that we see from your community are horrible, abusive ones. So everyone was very nervous for me. And there was just something really different and really fascinating about doing this work and being part of the community and being able to kind of see both sides to understand why people were struggling, but also understand why people wanted to be part of the community so badly. Because anyone who's working really, really hard to get a get in the US, they're doing that because they they want to be part of this community and they want to have what they need to move forward within the community. So I think being able to see it in a more holistic way it's, it's easier to do when you're on the inside. And there are challenges to working in the community that you live in. So it's, it's a mixed bag. There are really pros and cons to it. But I think there's just a lot of reward that comes from knowing that you're you're kind of making your own backyard a better place. Right. And and it's such an interesting point that you raise because, you know, with with all of this talk that's been around get refusal recently, it you know, you can't help but wonder what would you do in that situation, you make such a good point that the women who are fighting to get their get are really fighting to stay a part of the community. You know, they're fighting for the ability to have future Orthodox Jewish marriages. And that's that's really a huge thing that's that's overlooked. So how did you get involved with Ora? Who who, who was running it before you? So the person running it before me was named Jeremy Stern, and I got involved in ORA because I was working, I had initially thought I was going to be a matrimonial litigator and represent domestic abuse survivors in court on custody and, you know, financial distribution and those types of cases. And what I noticed is that as a student, when I was sort of in the room for those strategy conversations, the get was almost this like boogeyman sitting there in the corner of the room, popping up every other minute, that half of the strategic decisions were made based on, well, if we do this, then we can use this for the get. And if we do this, then it's going to impact the get in this way. And so when I heard about an opening at Ora, which in classic Jewish geography world, like I found out because like my mom's friend's daughter knew about the opening, you know, it came to me in a very roundabout way. And I figured this would be such a good way to learn more about this get thing because it keeps compliment it keeps complicating everything we're trying to do and then I'll learn about that for a year or two and then go back to matrimonial litigation and I ended up again really falling in love with the get work specifically but it really just came as sort of a side thing and oh this would be just an interesting thing to know more about when you say that the get was always like a boogeyman in what ways like in my okay giving my own background. Um, nobody in my immediate family is divorced. Both of my parents have, you know, my parents have been together for 30 plus years. My grandparents were together for like 50 something. I don't know. Like I have, I have no experience with divorce in any immediate kind of capacity at all. And in my head, it was always, you like in, in my head, it was always, you give a get right away. That was just like what happens. You give a get right away and then you sort out all the other issues in civil court, like things like custody and child support. All of that can be sorted out in the legal system. Is that just not how this works? Is that just not 
what happens or are there divorces that happen that way? There are divorces that happen that way. And a really important thing to realize is that no one's calling Ora to tell us what a great day they're having or what, you know. <laughs> just I, mean, wanna, I just want to let you know that me and my me and my husband decided that it's not going to work out. Everything, you know, listen, this is not great. It's not worth working anymore. I just want to let you know that we had a great divorce. Everything's great. He's paying me child support. We're all good. Life is Life is going on. So just, so I just wanted to inform you. <laughs> exactly. And so we do get the happy calls when someone gets their get. We do have really exciting moments. But overall, people call us when there's a problem. So for sure, not every divorce is going to lead to problems. It's the ones that do that end up at our doorstep. Now, there are different opinions out there on when a get should be given. Some people hold that it should be the first order of business, that as soon as we know this marriage is dead, it's not continuing, we deal with the get. And as you said, we go to court, we have a lot of opportunities, honestly, to work the rest of the details out in a lot of different ways. However, there are other people who feel that the get should be the last order of business and the final thing that's done. And what often happens, and this is where it gets a little more deciduous and a little harder to parse out, someone will say, I'm not withholding a get. God forbid, like that's a terrible thing to do. I'm just not giving it now. And often what they mean by that, when you really pull it out of them, is that they're waiting on the get because they want to see what happens in the divorce. And if they find that, say they're not doing well in court, judge doesn't like them very much. In family law, that's a really big deal because everything in family law is very much up to the judge. So if the judge doesn't like you, you're in trouble. Sometimes it's really an insurance policy for people where if I'm not happy with how the divorce turns out, I can turn to my ex and say, listen, you want your get, I want the house. The judge might have said we should split it 50-50, but that's not what I want to do. So if you want your get and you want your freedom, then you're going to give me what I want. And that's a real concern because whenever we count agunot, and people always ask how many agunot there are, and it's a really hard question to answer, what we don't count, but we need to keep in mind, are all the people who take really bad deals because they're afraid of not getting a get or they're explicitly being threatened that if they don't take that deal, there's no get coming. So there's always a concern that if we're holding it, why are we holding it? What are you trying to get out of this get that you are keeping it at bay and not just giving it outright? Yeah, so what you just described is extortion. Yeah. So how is that not illegal in the United States? How is that? Because like that to me, if I had like naked pictures of someone and I said, give me a million dollars, otherwise I will publish your naked pictures. I could take that person to court and I could say they are extorting me. They are blackmailing me. Why can't I do that with a get? So this is where I'll, I'll go on my my law school soapbox a little mm -hmm. bit. But the truth is we still have a lot of cultural overtones in our legal system of this idea that marriage is private and marriage is this this sort of wrapped in bubble wrap. And we don't really want to peel away the bubble wrap and see what's going on in there. So you name almost any crime, almost any type of lawsuit, it is a thousand times easier to sue a stranger over it than it is to sue your spouse or your ex. That courts are automatically kind of suspicious. Well, I don't want to be in the middle of every nasty divorce in this country. So I don't want to open the door for this type of claim because then I'm going to have a million people beating down the door who are all mad at their ex. Now, personally, I think that's a lame excuse. I think that all legal systems have to separate between 
you know, really viable claims and sort of nonsense claims used to harass each other. But the reality is we don't have great systems in place for dealing with domestic abuse in general, and certainly non-physical domestic abuse, that once we've moved outside of physical assault, the legal system is not great at responding to it and doesn't leave you a ton of options. Right. Yeah. The the non-physical aspect is is a huge point because it's, you know, it's very easy to say he hits you, you leave, and less easy to say, well, you know, he tells you that you're worthless a hundred times a day, then what do you do? And what does that mean? And and all of that. That's yeah, that's that's really tricky. When when you, you know, I, I'm going to ask you a question you just told me you can't answer, but on, you, you know, you just said, I, I'm not going to ask you how many Agunos there are, because that's such a hard thing to, like you said, to really, where do you define it? At what point do you decide that, that this is someone who is, a, who is an Aguna and this is someone who's just involved in a bad divorce? But um, how many clients a year do you serve? So we work on about 75 active Aguna cases at a time, and actually a few Agun cases in there. So these are situations where the husband wants to give a get, the wife doesn't want to take it. And so we have that caseload, and pretty much we resolve a case, we take on another one. We're never not busy, unfortunately. And we work with an additional 300 people every year who are earlier on in the process. So these are situations where it wouldn't officially fit any criteria in terms of being an Aguna case, but they're often people that are trying to leave abusive relationships. The get has either been explicitly threatened or they just know their ex and they know it's probably going to be difficult. And they're looking for guidance on how to set themselves up for success and how to just navigate the process. Part of what's so hard about this is that the Jewish divorce process is super complicated. We know all about Shabbos and kosher and Pesach cleaning, and most of us don't know even five minutes worth of information about the based-in system. And so then when we have to go through it, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what our rights are. We're probably not going to ask our husband's rub for help in that situation. And so there's a real lack of just basic understanding of what is this system? How can I navigate it successfully? And what choices do I have in this process? Yeah. And what I'm hearing from what you just said is that not every abusive relationship turns into a get refusal situation with those early cases that you're that you're talking about. So if someone here is listening and they suspect that they may be in an abusive relationship or know that they're in an abusive relationship and are thinking about leaving but are terrified about what that divorce process would look like, what are some things that they can do to not end up in a situation where they're waiting for a get for a decade plus? The best thing to do is to reach out as soon as you can. Even when you're thinking about divorce, you haven't spoken to your your partner yet, that's okay too. It's really a question of getting in early. It's almost like if you think about a disease, for example, if a disease is diagnosed at stage four, there are only going to be so many options and they're only going to be so successful. You don't have a great range of tools. If you catch a disease in stage one, you have many, many more options. The other thing that's very, very important to know is that when you sign an arbitration agreement to abate in, that is binding both in Jewish law and in civil law. And so people sometimes feel a pressure to get things moving and just sign this or sign that. 
please do your research before you sign. Better to spend six months researching something and then sign, than sign in five minutes and spend six years regretting that you went with this particular forum or that you chose this particular process. So it's really important to get advice. And part of what's so hard about giving advice generally is that it really depends. It depends what community you're part of. It depends what's most important to you. Some people call and say, you know what? I would love to have a get, that would be helpful. But my electricity is getting cut off in three days and I need child support and I need it right this second. And the advice that we would offer them is going to vary based on what they need the most right now. So get individualized help. And another thing I'll add as well, we have a helpline where people call us early in the process. It's at no cost. So this doesn't cost money. It does take time and time is limited, but reach out. There is so much support out there that will not cost you a single penny. And the more you can educate yourself and inform yourself, the better you can position yourself to really get through this successfully. What is the number of that helpline? It is 1-844-OSF-LINE. We call it one step forward because we wanted to brand it a little differently. We don't want people to feel that it's only for Agunode or it's only for people who are officially there. It's really for anyone who has questions on the Jewish divorce process and a ton of people call because they have a friend or family member that they're worried about and they want to talk things out. They want to connect their, their friend with resources. They're helping them out and doing some research. All calls are welcome, but really get yourself help and support as early as you can. Yeah, and I cannot echo Keshet's statement strongly enough. The uh, the other thing I want to ask you is that you mentioned signing an arbitration agreement. When you go to Baston, you are what does that mean? When you say is that like the Baston decides something and then you sign that you agree with it, or is that that you're agreeing to um, to listen to what they say? What what does that what does that mean? So there are different processes and Bateden will do things differently. Sometimes a based-in will mediate. What mediation is all about, wherever you do it, is that it's about the couple together coming to an agreement. Most people in the throes of a divorce cannot just sit down at their kitchen table and work out a plan. Sometimes they can, but pretty rarely. So what a mediator offers, whether it's a beast-in or an individual, is a third party to help you work things out and to educate you as to what the law says on the topic so that you have that information. What a beast-in typically does is arbitration. Arbitration Imagine a judge, except it's a Diane in a Beeston instead of a judge. Arbitration is, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, and this is going to be your plan. Now, an area where this gets confusing is that in New York State, any religious arbitration on custody or visitation or child support can be overturned by the court system. But this is an area where people get confused. They'll sign it and say, what does it matter? It'll get overturned anyway. Just because it can be overturned doesn't mean it will be overturned. And if there's anything you need to know about courts, it's that courts are not looking for more work to do. They are not looking to add cases to their docket. And now that they are horrifically behind due to COVID, they are certainly not looking to add cases to their docket. So it's really important to just understand what can an arbitration panel do, what can't an arbitration panel do, and to realize that just because it's 
that's happening in Beeston doesn't mean that it's not binding and impactful in court. A lot of people don't realize that and end up signing things that they're stuck with and regret later. Right. Yeah, that I can see how that would get very, very tricky. You mentioned that you deal with some agoons, as we would call them, some men whose wives don't want to um, accept the get. Um, What percentage of people would you say of men do you deal with to women? And how are those cases different? So we deal with about 5% women refusing to receive a get, 95% men. Now, part of it, our name indicates Agunote. I think not everyone might know that we work with men, so that plays a role. I also think the fact that a heteromare rebunum exists, that there are these sort of options out there available to men, means that women are less likely to go ahead and refuse, and men know that they have this option, might just pursue that instead of calling us. So there's a number of factors. The main thing I would say that's different, and this is just a good thing to keep in mind, very often get refusers will say, well, my wife is not accepting the get. It's a really common excuse. And most of the time, it's pretty much nonsense. We research, we do our own research. We vet our cases carefully and we work with a rabbinic panel. And so if we're out there on a case, we've done our homework and it's a legitimate case. But it's just good to know that not every person who says, oh, well, my wife won't take a get, Sometimes there are more details than that. So they might be trying to extort their wife and she's not accepting the extortion offer. And therefore they'll tell everyone, oh, she's not accepting the get. So it's just good to know that when you're dealing with abusive personalities, they're often going to have a lot of stories about why they have absolutely no choice but to do what they're doing. Yeah. Give me a million dollars and then I'll give you the get is not someone refusing to accept a get. Right. But they'll often leave out the million dollars piece and just tell everyone like, listen, I want to give her a get. She's just not taking it. Right. Yeah. That I have some choice words to say about that, which I will refrain (laughs) from using right now. Um, When you. you, mm, Okay. Keep it. Keep a lid on it, Rifki. Safe space here. Safe. No. uh, Yeah. I have to behave myself in public, though. Um, When (laughs) you mentioned that you have a vetting process. What is that? How do you verify? Because we are talking about intimate things that happen in a marriage that happen that by by their own nature happen behind closed doors. What does your vetting process look like? How do you know that you are that you are working with people who are legitimately in abusive situations and not just, let's say, some woman trying to game the system? Definitely. And one thing I'll say just to really highlight a little more the position that we take, we are very focused on the gap. We are not here to advocate for paying child support, even though you should definitely pay it, or for, you know, parental alienation, or to have parents, you know, do this, or to have people do that. That's not what we're focused on. And so part of the position that we take is that we recognize that divorce is complicated. We recognize that there's rarely just a hero and a villain. That would be super easy if that's how every case was set up, but it's not. And we understand that things are complicated, but what we do is we focus in specifically on the get. And what we're saying is that listen, this whole divorce might be all gray, but this issue, this decision to not 
cooperate with the Jewish divorce, that's black and white. And that's where we're going to focus on. And all of our advocacy is focused on that. Even if someone's not paid child support in 10 years, we're not going to stand on a street corner with posters and yell about that. That's not the issue that we're there for. So when it comes to vetting, again, we're focusing specifically on the get. We speak to everyone involved. That's also the best way to understand what's going on. We speak to both sides. A lot of people don't realize this. We always call the get refuser. You know, hi, I'm Keshet. I'm calling from Ora. Tell me about what's going on on your end. You know, we understand that there's a complicated situation. We really do everything possible to open up that line of communication. We speak to the Bate didn't involved, to the rabbis, to the attorneys, to, you know, the uncles, friends, dog walker, whoever has played a role in the case, we speak to them and we get information. And we do that partly because if there are skeletons in the closet, it's always good to know. We always tell people that we work with that uh, we don't like surprises at ORA. You know, if there's a if there's a complicated factor going on, we want to be aware of it. And again, we recognize the complexity of the individuals involved and of the situations involved, but we also feel that we absolutely can and should take a moral stance on this particular issue, even if we understand that it's happening in the context of a much bigger and much messier situation. Right, to, to really, you know, I like the way that you put that. Divorces are messy, but this is black and white. This is something that, that everyone should, um, I mean, I, I still can't wrap my head around the refusal aspect of it, but I'm just going to consider myself lucky in that in that regard. One of the things that Ora is known for um, and that you are huge advocates of is the halachic prenup, um, which I, it's funny because as, as this whole issue became just, as it just became the thing that everyone was talking about, I took kind of an informal survey among my friends. And I was like, had any, who here, you know, and for anyone here who's married, who, you know, who did the halakhic prenup? Why did you do it? If you knew about it before, why didn't you do it? If you're single, were you thinking about doing it? And the responses were really varied. Everything from, you know, my friends who had signed it being horrified that I didn't have one. It, I had like only vaguely heard about it before I got married. And it wasn't, it just wasn't on my list of things to do. Like it just wasn't something that I really considered. Um, and, you know, everything from that to people who felt like it was not really romantic or just, or, or just felt weird to kind of discuss, like, by the way, we should plan for when this all goes south and, and all of that. So I'd love for you to, to give us a little bit more insight into the prenup and why you think it's so important. Such a good question. And I'll say also that I call it the ick factor, but I think a lot of people feel that way. And it's really good to be able to talk about it and be open about that. That when you first hear about it, it does seem kind of icky and unromantic and not sort of the attitude we want to have. The reason we love the prenup, and I can go in afterwards into what it says specifically, because a lot of people wonder that too, is that first of all, it's effective for the couples that sign it, that it really in the vast majority of cases avoids the vast majority of problems that we see in these scenarios, which is what leads us to these horrible get refusal cases that we read about on Instagram. So it really addresses a lot of those kind of potholes and smooths them over. 
But what's even more important about the prenup is that yes, it impacts the couple and that's great. But more than that, it really sends a cultural message. If you live in a community where all your friends sign a prenup and your Rav won't marry you unless you sign a prenup and your in-laws won't pay for the wedding unless you sign a prenup, that's also a community where you don't want to be a get refuser because it's not really worth it. And we've found that as the prenup has become more and more normative in the modern Orthodox communities, we're actually not getting cases from those communities anymore. We're getting cases from different communities. So it really has that sort of cultural trickle-down effect where it starts to get really rare to see get refusal because the cost is too high. And abusers are absolutely social beings like everyone else. They want to be part of the community. If it comes at too high a cost, very few people will do it. And so it really helps keep that cost up. And I also think a helpful thing about the prenup and the way we present the prenup, we go into high schools, we speak to college students, we're speaking to really young people and we don't want to send them out into the world with this message of welcome to adulthood. It's, you know, a jungle out here. Good luck. We really frame it as sort of an empowering thing that yes, we have this problem in our community, but we also have solutions. We're not sitting ducks here. There are things that we can do that make a difference. And the biggest thing to know about the prenup is that you don't sign the prenup for yourself. First of all, no one thinks they're going to need it. But if you really do think you're going to need it, that's something that you need to explore a little deeper as to why you're marrying this person. It is not something you sign for yourselves. It's something that you sign because you love the Jewish community and you care about other people and someone out there is going to need it. So if you're signing it brings us one step closer to everyone signing it, which it does, every single prenup gets us one step closer, then why not? You're doing something for someone else. And that can be a really helpful way to also present it to your fiance if they've never heard of it to say of course we're not going to need it like that would it even cross my mind I want to do this because I care about claustral and I'm reading about these terrible cases on social media and here's this thing that we can do that takes 10 minutes costs zero dollars and can be part of making a change and making this issue just no longer a relevant part of our community yeah. When do you think that part of the reason why you are seeing so few cases of get refusal in the cases where there is a halakhic prenup is because it is kind of self-selecting in a way? The kinds of people who are going to sign the prenup are not the kinds of people who are going to end up being get refusers? Not necessarily. And a lot of people expect that. I think the prenup does a couple of things. It changes the expectations. So I worked on a case years ago. They had a prenup. They lost it. I will say on a side note, we have a digital registry. So if you sign a prenup, send us a copy and, and we'll have one for you. And I was speaking with the husband's towing, his rabbinic advocate. And he was saying, well, if she wants to get, she has to pay this and she has to do that. And these are all of our demands, et cetera. And I framed my language very carefully. And I said, you know, there is a prenup. And the towing said, oh, there's a prenup. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. We'll do the get on Thursday. There was just this feeling of, you know, game over. <laughs> like, no, there's a prenup. Now we can't use this for extortion like we were planning to. Oh, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. And so it was the a funny conversation. of it is what you can, you can only laugh. The right. just, ah, uh, the lack right. of shame. Wow. Really? And it's, again, and that's appalling. 
but I love that story because I think that's the biggest thing the prenup does. It changes the conversation. So it's like, all right, we can't play that game. Maybe we would have wanted to, but we can't play that game. And the other reason that the prenup is so effective is that it encourages the get early. And I can't explain enough how important timing is. I feel like I keep talking about it, but it makes such a difference. When someone has been withholding a get for 15 years, it's part of their identity now. It is going to be really, really hard to get them to change their mind. And that doesn't mean there are zero options. So if you're in that situation, call and get help. But anything is just going to be more of an uphill battle where if you can encourage a get within two months of separation, it is a different ball game in terms of who you're working with on the other side. And now that we've seen more and more couples get married with the prenup, we are seeing couples get divorced with the prenup and we're seeing abusive relationships get divorced with the prenup. And we're seeing that it works. People sign the prenup because it's socially normal, not necessarily because they're, they're delightful people. They might be and they might not be, but if it becomes part of the cultural norm, people sign it and sometimes they're not happy about that when they get divorced and they want to use the get as leverage, but that ship has sailed. So I think it, it's a, a common misconception, but we shouldn't assume that this is only going to impact the sort of sweetest, nicest people who would never do this in the first place, because it doesn't. The more it becomes part of the fabric of the culture, the more people sign it. And some of them are abusive. Some of them are controlling. Some of them are just obnoxious people, but they're still signing it because everybody else is. Yeah, that's, that is for sure. I am someone who likes to do research and likes to do homework. So I actually looked up the pre and post snap, you know, as this conversation was going, because I wanted to see what was in it. Um, and I am not a lawyer and some of it didn't make so much sense to me. So what I want to do now is that I am going to read the prenup and you're going to translate it for me. And you're going to tell me exactly what we're talking about. Um, and this way people can really understand what's, you know, what's in there. And also just for myself, because I would like to know, um, just to make sure that I understand this, the post snap is exact, has exactly the same information as it in it. It's just for someone who's already married. Correct. Absolutely. It's a little bit less legally enforceable than a prenup. So there are different laws surrounding either when it comes to bringing it into court, we'd rather you have a prenup than a postnup. So even if you're busy before your wedding, make the time, it's super fast, get the prenup done. But otherwise, signing a postnup is a great way to be part of that cultural change. Right. And the but the content of it is the same as the prenup. Yes. Okay, awesome. So we're going to work with the prenup, um, just because it's the one that I pulled up here. Um, Let's do it. Okay, so it, at the very top, it says this agreement consists of two pages and a notarization page. Instructions for filling out this document may be found on page four. Everyone read instructions. This makes things easier. It is important that the instructions being carefully read and followed in completing the form. That's pretty self-explanatory. Then it starts. This agreement made on the blank date in the year 20 blank between husband-to-be, presumably where you put the guy's name, residing at presumably his address, and wife-to-be, the girl's name, residing at his address. Do I have it right so far? That's how it goes. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. The Okay. Here, here's where it gets fun. The parties who intend to be married in the near future hereby agree as follows. Number one, arbitration. Should a dispute arise between the parties so that they do not live together as husband and wife, they agree to submit to binding arbitration before the Basin of America, currently located at 305 7th Avenue Suite, 1201 New York, New York, 1001, Basin.org, which shall have exclusive jurisdiction to decide all issues related to a get 
Jewish divorce, the Ketubah and Tanaim, Jewish premarital agreements, entered into by the husband-to-be and the wife-to-be. Any issues and obligations arising from or in connection with this agreement, including under paragraphs two, three, and six hereof, and any disputes relating to the enforceability, formation, conscionability, and validity of this agreement, including any claims that all or any part of this agreement is void or voidable, and the arbitration of any disputes arising here under. English, please. Great. So... The first thing to know is that almost everything in this agreement, there's the core content, there's a lot of legalese, and there's a lot of a lot of halachaese. So there's a fair amount of legalese in this one. First thing to know, a lot of people assume when you sign a prenup, you're signing an automatic get. You're not. You're actually signing an arbitration agreement. And an arbitration agreement is a commitment that if we have a problem about X issue, we're going to go to this forum to make a decision. So many employees will sign an arbitration agreement with their employer that if we have a dispute related to our employment, we're going to go to XYZ forum and they're going to decide. So you're agreeing that if you disagree about what to do about the get, you're going to go to the best end of America. The rest of it pretty much says a lot of what's legalese, which is that if there is a question about, well, what does section 2A, B, subsection 4 mean? The best in of America gets to interpret and decide what that means. When it comes to conscionability, that's part of contract law. That if we're getting married and in the limo on the way to the church, I hand you a 65-page prenup and say, sign it, that might not be a legally valid document. And so there are questions sometimes that come up as to how a document is signed. Was it signed ethically? Was there something unconscionable, something really inappropriate that happened in the signing process? And it's pretty much saying that the BDA, Best of America, gets to make the call on those types of questions. Okay, so you're basically just agreeing to go to Baston with your divorce questions. Yes. Okay, section two. This uh, section I would like to note is optional, and it is clearly optional because it is in a gray box in a with green type. Okay. So uh, section two, financial and, cus- and custody issues. Paragraphs 2A and 2B regarding additional financial issues and child custody issues are optional. 2A, the parties agree that the Basin of America is authorized to decide all monetary disputes, including division of property and maintenance that may arise between them, and to utilize principles of equitable distribution in accordance with customary practice as the Basin deems appropriate according to principles of Jewish law, equity, and local custom. We choose to have paragraph 2A apply to our arbitration agreement, signature of husband-to-be, signature of wife-to-be. English, please. So the baseline language of the prenup is that you're just talking about the get. You're not talking about other end of marriage issues, which are primarily kids and money. And so what the optional sections allow you to do is that if you want to, you can ask the Basin to also adjudicate kids and money or just one or the other. So we want the Basin to just adjudicate custody or to just adjudicate finances. So what that section says is that if you want to, you can say, you know what, we don't just want want the Basin to adjudicate the get. We also want the Basin to adjudicate finances. And how is the Basin going to make those decisions? They're going to use the principle of equitable distribution, which is the legal theory around property division in New York, which is a very fancy term for whatever seems fair. That's what equitable distribution means. And so, so equitable distribution, just to make sure I'm understanding you, is a legal term. It's not a halachic term. 
Exactly. That's okay. a legal term. There are several theories out there of how a divorcing couple should divide property. And most states go with equitable distribution, which pretty much means whatever seems fair, which pretty much means whatever the judge wants to do. And so that's kind of what it means in practice. But it's really a question of, do you want that added level of involvement in the basin? And that's up to each, each individual couple. Many of the couples who signed with us at Aura are super young. They barely have like a beat up futon between them. And the idea of even having kids or money, let alone needing to divide them is very overwhelming. So many of them are just like, oh, I don't know. I don't really want to sign that right now, but it's really up to you. I find that the people who sign this the most with us are couples who have actually already been divorced, one or both parties, and they they really know what the process is like, and they have a specific vision for how they would want to make decisions in the event that they were in that situation. Okay, that makes sense to me. Section 2B, the parties agree that the Basin of America is authorized to decide all disputes, including child custody, child support, and visitation matters, as well as any other disputes that may arise between them. We choose to have Section 2B apply to our arbitration agreement, signature of husband-to-be, signature of wife-to-be. This is just the kids section of the kids and money part that you were just talking about, right? Exactly. And you can okay. do either or or both or none. So okay. it's entirely up to you. Awesome. Section 2C, this is still optional. The best of America may consider the respective responsibilities of either or both parties for the end of the marriage as an additional but not exclusive factor in determining the distribution of marital property and maintenance should such a determination be authorized by paragraph 2A or paragraph 2B. English, please. So typically in really any forum, although it can vary depending on the base end, a lot of people assume that when decisions about a divorce are being made, it's going to be made based on whose fault the divorce was. So if Tom cheated on Sally, then of course Tom would have to give up the house. That is not how the law works at all. If you want that to be how decisions are made, you can add in that piece. So that's, again, an optional item if it's something that's important to a couple that we want that element of who's at fault or who did what to come into play. And this again is only if you're asking the basin to adjudicate custody or finances or both. It's an added element as to allow the basin to consider that element of fault if they want to. Just a little bit of extra spite if you're feeling. Yes. <laughs> okay. Section three, support obligation. A, husband-to-be acknowledges that he recites and accepts the following. I obligate myself to support my wife-to-be according to the requirements of Jewish law governing Jewish husbands. Furthermore, I hereby now me'achshav, obligate myself in a matter that I cannot exempt myself with any claim of asmachta? Asmachta, I think that's what that says. Asmachta, yeah. Okay. Unenforceable conditional obligation or any other claim to support my wife-to-be from the date that our domestic residence together shall cease for whatever reasons at the rate of $150 per day calculated as the date of our marriage adjusted annually by the consumer price index, all urban consumers as published by the U S department of labor bureau of labor statistics in lieu of my Jewish ob- law obligation of support as here and above cited and circumscribed. So long as the two of us remain married, according to Jewish law, even if she has another source of income or earnings. Furthermore, I waive my halachic rights to my wife's earnings for the period that she is entitled to the above stipulated sum. And I recite that I shall be deemed to have repeated this waiver at the time of our wedding. I acknowledge that I now, Me'ach Shav, affected the above obligations by mean of a Kenyan, formal Jewish transaction, in an esteemed chashuv based in as prescribed by Jewish law. 
However, this support obligation shall terminate if despite husband-to-be's compliance with the terms of this agreement and the decision or recommendation of the Basin of America, wife-to-be refuses to appear upon due notice before the Basin of America or in the event that wife-to-be fails to abide by the decision or recommendation of the Basin of America. This is the part that gets people really excited and has been getting a lot of press lately. So English, please explain to me what this penalty is. Yes. So if we were at like a restaurant having a tasting menu, this is the entree. This is like the steak of the prenup. And what it essentially says is it creates, and again, a prenup is not an automatic get. You put the quarter in, get comes out. Not how this works. What it does do is it creates an incentive structure where you are highly, highly motivated to cooperate with the get. So what does it mean? The idea is that in Jewish marriage, it's not just fun and games, but we have obligations too. And that husbands have a financial obligation to support their wives. And so as long as you are living separately, the marriage is over, but you're still halakhically married, AKA there's no get, then you have to pay the support obligation. And on one hand, it's like, listen, you stood under the chuppah, you made the commitment to provide the support. So now it's getting formalized. Now you're writing a check. What it practically means is that for every day that you delay the get, you owe your spouse $150, which roughly works out to about $54,000 a year. And that continues indefinitely. So it's really a motivating factor to give the get and not have to pay this money. Now, a good thing to know, you're probably reading the standard version. There is a reciprocal version of the prenup where each person makes that commitment. So I'm reading the, the reciprocal husband, version. I'm reading the oh, reciprocal, it is the reciprocal version. version. Okay, so we haven't gotten there yet. So it's just a good thing to know that if people are more comfortable with this, there is absolutely a version where each person makes the commitment. Now, a lot of the rest of the stuff in that passage is halacha ease. There is always a concern about an asmachta. An asmachta is an agreement that you never intend on keeping. And so someone could say, well, I signed this prenup, but obviously I didn't think I was going to need it or I wouldn't have married the girl. So, you know, it's an asmachta. So it's really sort of nipping that argument in the bud. And it's also the language around the Kenyan. It's providing a lot of the halakhic terminology. And it's also separating this support obligation from any other legal requirement. And that's a really important piece because what this means is that you have to pay this $150 a day, even if you're already paying alimony and child support and splitting the house and doing everything else. It's on top of all those other payments. And the last piece is just noting that if the other person isn't cooperating, then you obviously don't have to keep paying. So say the husband says, you know what, fine. I don't want to be a get refuser and spend this money. I'm going to give you the get. And the wife says, you know what? I've been thinking about it. I don't really want to get right now. And I actually do want $150 a day. So let's just keep the money coming and I won't accept the get. That obviously would not be a a fair situation. So that last sentence or two is trying to avoid that type of a scenario where the other person's not cooperating, but the money's still getting paid. So it's really focused on the person who is not giving the get has to pay the money, assuming that the other person is also cooperating with the process and willing to accept the get and end the relationship as well. So basically the the clock starts when one person says, I will either receive or give the get and the other person says not so fast. 
Right. And sometimes each version of the prenup is structured a tiny bit differently. So sometimes it requires a formal notification to trigger it. So a letter saying, I am using the prenup. Sometimes it sort of dates back to separation. Sometimes it doesn't. It's the language has been tweaked over the years. So we always like to look at the specific document that was signed and figure out what the trigger mechanism is on that particular document. But that's basically the idea. Once you have a couple that's living separately, one person doesn't cooperate the first thing that they will do is have a hearing in the basin. And very often they walk out of that hearing having given a get. Not always, but very often. And so it kind of gets people in the door quickly. And in the event that the person's still not cooperating, then they would have to start paying this money. But it's extremely rare for someone to actually pay the money. I've seen people wait until the day that the money was supposed to start transferring and then they give the get so they might wait till the 11th hour but they generally will give it they're not going to wait and let the money start to pile up okay that makes sense so after that we're at um section b of it's we're up to 3b this says wife to be acknowledges that she recites and accepts the following and this to me because this is the reciprocal version looks like exactly what i just read before um with um with the support obligation is that correct Yes. The only difference is the source of the obligation, which the prenup doesn't really get into, but people ask about this sometimes. For the husband, there's a financial obligation to provide for the wife. The idea is that for the wife, there's an obligation to uh, do certain things around the house and that in theory, if you quantified how much it would cost to get takeout every night and dry cleaning and I don't know what, that would roughly work out to the same amount. So they're both structured on what are the obligations that we take upon ourselves when we enter into Jewish marriage and how do we formalize those obligations in a monetary amount to then create an incentive for the get to be given. Got it. Okay. So moving on to the next section, Uh, this is section 3C. The payment obligation set forth in paragraphs 3A and 3B above shall be subject to offset by each other so long as both shall be payable and shall not otherwise be subject to offset. These support obligations under Jewish law are independent of any civil or state law obligation for spousal support or any civil or state law imposed order for spousal support and shall be determined only by Basin of America. You you spoke about this already. This is just that the, the get penalty needs to be given regardless of child support alimony or any of that, right? Absolutely. Because if you don't have that in, someone could say, I'm already paying more than $150 a day. The court ordered me to pay, you know, $400 a day, whatever it is. So the idea is to really separate it out. Got it. Okay. Section four, opportunity for consultation. Each of the parties acknowledges that he or she has been given the opportunity prior to signing this agreement to consult with his or her own rabbinic advisor and legal advisor. Each of the parties further acknowledges that he or she has been fully informed of the terms and basic effect of this agreement, as well as the rights and obligation he or she may be giving up by signing this agreement. Each of the parties expressly waives in connection with this agreement, one, any right to consult with his or her legal counsel to the extent that they have not done so, and two, any right to disclose of property or financial obligations of the other party beyond any disclosures that have been provided. The obligations and conditions contained herein are executed according to all legal and halakhic requirements. English, please. So this is basically a lot of legalese. Anytime a contract is signed, you have to put in that you had the opportunity to do your homework and research the contract. What this means practically, though, 
don't sign the prenup at your wedding. That's my sort of fun fact tip for the day. Some people like to do that as a public message. By all means, decorate your prenup with, you know, dancing deer and watercolor and paper cutouts and display it at the wedding. But it's not a good idea to sign it at the wedding because it gets much harder to actually show that you did have the opportunity to ask questions, to speak to a rub if you want to, to speak to a lawyer if you want to, and just to sort of digest the information. You always want people to sign a contract when they're not under a ton of pressure. It's not, you have five minutes to do this, just sign. And that people have the opportunity to ask questions and again, just do whatever research they need to do to feel comfortable signing it. Okay. Five, governing law. The decision of the Basin of America shall be made in accordance with Jewish law, halacha, or based in ordered settlement in which the relative equities of the party's claims are considered in accordance with the principles of Jewish law, pshara, krova, ladin, except as specifically provided otherwise in this agreement. What does that mean? So any arbitration agreement has to know what law are we using? Are we using the laws of Sweden because we think Sweden has like fabulous laws and we want to use them? Are we using something else? And so this is really saying that it's using Jewish law. And the idea of Pshara Krovaladin is sort of a, a halachic version of this idea of equity. And equity is, is sort of just about fairness. And it sounds very loosey-goosey, but essentially the Basin doesn't want to pigeonhole itself by saying we are only using New York state law based on this, 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 this that they're saying we're gonna hear the facts and we're going to make a determination as to what seems ethical and fair in this particular case. And if you wanna say, I only want New York State to govern those law, or I only want, you know, I am partial to the laws of California and I want those to come in, you can put those in there. That's not common here. You'll see that in say a corporate agreement where the tax laws might be more favorable in Delaware versus New York. So you might put in that Delaware law should be used. It's not common, but again, it's a legalese where you just need to have something in there about when the Basin is sitting down to make a decision, what book are they opening? Are they opening the New York State, you know, matrimonial code? Are they opening, you know, the Shulchan Arach? What are they opening? What are they using to make that decision? And so we're saying here that they're using halacha, Jewish law. They're using halacha with the lens of equity, which is a very broad sense of fairness. And that's, again, not dissimilar from how courts will make decisions, that courts are obviously bound by the laws of their state, but they will also sort of take into account sort of case-by-case wrinkles and what seems fair and appropriate with the case before them. Okay. Number six, rules, default judgment, and cost. The parties agree to appear in person before the Basin of America at a location mutually convenient to the arbitrators and the parties at the demands of the other party to cooperate with the adjudication of the Basin of America in every way and manner and to abide by the published rules and procedures of the Basin of America available at bethden.org, which are in effect at the time of the, of the arbitration. If either party fails to appear before the Basin of America upon reasonable notice, the Basin of America may issue its decision despite the defaulting party failure to appear and may impose costs and other penalties as legally permitted. Both parties obligate themselves to pay for the services of the Basin of America. Failure of either party to perform his or her obligations under this agreement shall make that party liable for all costs, including reasonable attorney fees incurred by one side in order to obtain the other party's performance of the terms of this agreement. 
So part of this is logistical. We agree to show up. We agree to pay you for your time. But the really important piece here, actually, that's substantive is that the Beeston is allowed to make a default judgment. A default judgment means that if Tom and Sally are suing each other and Tom just stops showing up to court, the court can go ahead and issue a ruling even if Tom isn't there. It's a little bit of a pain, but just because someone doesn't show up doesn't mean that everything stops. Typically in Beeston, that's exactly what happens. You stop showing up, clock stops, and there really isn't an ability to keep the process moving. So what this is saying is that if I say, you know what, Beeston of America, Schmeeston of America, I'm not going to bother showing up, I can do that, but the Beeston can move on without me. And so the Beeston essentially reserves the right to continue the proceedings even without the person's attendance or compliance. Okay, that seems like a solid idea. Section yeah. 7. Jurisdiction and enforceability. By execution and delivery of this agreement, each party consents for itself and in respect of its property to the exclusive jurisdiction of the Basin of America with respect to the issues set forth in paragraph one. Each of the parties agree that he or she will not commence any action or proceeding relating to such issues in any court, rabbinical court, or arbitration forum other than the Basin of America. This agreement constitutes a fully enforceable arbitration agreement, and any decision issued pursuant to this agreement shall be fully enforceable in secular court. Should any provision of this agreement be deemed unenforceable, all other provisions shall continue to be enforceable to the maximum, to the maximum extent permitted by applicable law. As a matter of Jewish law, the parties agree that to effectuate this agreement, they accept now, though the Jewish law mechanism through the Jewish law mechanism of Kimli, whatever minority views determined by the Basin of America are needed to effectuate the obligations, procedures, and jurisdictional mandates contained in this agreement. English, please. So essentially what it's saying is that this is part of every arbitration agreement. When you agree to arbitrate, you are choosing one thing. As with any choice, once you choose that thing, you can't choose something else. So if someone were to say, oh, you want to go to the Beth of America for the get? That's so nice. I'm actually more in the mood to go to this other basin in you know, Chicago or whatever it is. They would not be able to do that. That by signing this agreement, you are giving the Beth of America exclusive access to whatever issues you signed up for. So whether it's the get only, whether it's the get plus other issues, that means that you are no longer free to go to another based in or theoretically to a court on those issues. The court piece would be more relevant if you signed an optional section. So if you agree that we're going to the best of America to adjudicate finances, that means you cannot go to court and file for finances. You've given up that optionality. And so I know it can seem very limiting, but what happens a lot of times in these cases is that people get into these stalemates over where they're going to arbitrate. Are we going to be here? Or are we going to be there? And that stalemate can actually add years to a case. And so by making a decision and then holding people to that decision, you can skip a lot of the, the drama that would normally happen. And in terms of the last pieces, that's mostly legalese. Every contract has something saying that even if we someone decides that Clause 25 is not valid because it's unconstitutional or it's this or that, that the rest of the contract survives. And so that's just something that's built into any contract as sort of a, you know, boilerplate, something that we have to include just in case. Is it, I mean, this is very simplistic, but is it correct to kind of think of this section six as a no backsies 
section? Pretty much. And, and it's okay. again, it's an understanding of this is what arbitration is, that when you decide to go here, you can't also go somewhere else for the same thing, that you're deciding to go to this place for this set of issues. And that has closed out the options to now go to five other places. Got it. Okay. Last one. Section eight. Counterparts. This agreement may be signed in one or more duplicates, each of which shall be considered an original. That sounds like a boilerplate template if I ever heard one. Exactly. Part of every contract have to have it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, then there's this lovely gray box and witness of all the above the husband to be and wife to be have entered into this agreement, signature of husband to be signature of witness twice, signature of wife to be signature of witness twice. Can you use the same two witnesses for each thing? Or do you need four people? You two witnesses are perfectly fine. What you would essentially do is each witness is witnessing each signature. So essentially you need two people to say, I saw Shani Schwartz sign this document and two people to say, I saw Yussi Schwartz sign this document. And it can and be the same two people. Exactly. And if they were signing it in two separate places or they waited till the last week and they don't want to see each other, they might be two different people, but it can absolutely be the same people. But under each net, each signature, you would have two different names because you're having two people attest that this person signed this document. So if someone says, oh, I didn't sign it, there was a, an imposter, you know, there at the OR office signing that document that you have witnesses. And the witnesses don't have to be halakhic witnesses. So any of the guidelines or the restrictions around who can be a halakhic witness don't apply here. It's just any legal witnesses. And it can actually be a really nice way to honor women in your life that you want to sort of give something special to because it, again, it has a lot more flexibility. Okay. And then the next page is just a notarization form. And then after that, there are the instructions. First of all, thank you for giving this translation because I, I mean, I tried to read it and I had no idea what I was looking at. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, is it a, is it a, um, I always thought of the prenup and now that we did this translation, I feel much more strong in this conviction that the, the prenup is essentially just a way to legally enforce the ksuba. That in situations where, you know, the whole point of the ksuba, the ksuba is basically a prenup. Um, and it's like, it's very not romantic. I know that nobody pays attention to it. And it just talks about like goats and sheep and whatever. Um, <laughs> but it's really not a romantic document. It is essentially a prenup that talks about the obligations that each party has to the other. And what happens if this all goes south, which is why I always find it so strange when people like frame their ksuba. It's weird. Um I mean, I get it, but whatever, not my thing. But either way, it's the, the prenup is essentially taking this ksuba that we all get married with. You know, you would never think to get married without a ksuba and making it something that holds up in court that has real muster as opposed to just being a nice piece of paper that you sign. Is that, I mean, it sounds, it feels overly simplistic, but is that an accurate representation of what this does? It's very accurate because we can't really enforce ketubas practically. There's a lot of case law on it, but let's just say the fact that it's signed in Aram the fact that it's written in Aramaic and not actually signed by the couple doesn't help. So it's not a great like legally enforceable document to schlep into court and be like, here's my ketuba. But it's really absolutely in that vein. And so whenever people say like, oh, we only like to talk about unicorns and rainbows before we get married, I'm always tempted and sometimes will go ahead and say it, but that you're in the wrong religion for that, because that's really not how Jewish marriage is structured. And I think if anything, even though it seems so unromantic, maybe this is pushing it a little tiny bit, but I think you can make the case that real love is 
caring about someone through thick and thin and really saying, I want the best for you. And I always want you to be treated with the dignity and the respect that you deserve. And even if the worst happens, and even if this doesn't work, I still, even if I have to protect you from myself, I still want you to be protected. And I always want you to be treated well. And I think there's something very powerful about that, that Jewish marriage isn't just about unicorns and rainbows. It's about commitment, whether things are good or whether things are not good. And, and that's what commitment's really about. So I think it really fits with the culture. And it's often a new idea that we have to get a little used to and that we're naturally uncomfortable with at first. But if we give ourselves that time to get used to it, it really is such a natural fit with what we do already and what's built into our tradition and our way of looking at the world. I could not agree with you more. I was, I've been thinking about this issue a lot, you know, over the past couple of weeks. And, you know, when this thing of it's so unromantic came up and I was thinking about that, you know, like, I guess I get that it's awkward to bring up, you know, before you want to, you know, before you're walking down the aisle, like, by the way, if this goes south, but what you're really saying is I, you're really making a commitment to be civil to each other, no matter what. That's really what you're doing. You're really saying that I always want the best for you in any situation, no matter how awful it may be, no matter who's causing you that situation. And that sounds pretty romantic to me. You know, I always want to treat you well, no matter what is, I mean, that's, that gets me excited. Like that's a very romantic and sweet thing um, to be saying to everyone. This, I'm so I'm so glad that we had the, the chance to have this conversation and, and to talk over this. And thank you so much for, for, ex, for really getting granular with me. And, you know, the devil is in the details. And I really appreciate you breaking that down for me. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about you or about Ora, where can they go? So you can find us on social media. The Ora Instagram handle is Ora Aguno with two A's in the middle. I'm just at Keshet Star. I think I'm the only Keshet Star, so it makes it easy. And um, you can also find us on our website at www.getora.org. And I will say we help couples sign the prenup. We navigate situations where people don't agree about signing the prenup. And it's really at the risk of saying safe space twice in one conversation. It's really a place where you can feel comfortable asking questions. We're not going to judge you or think you're a creepy abuser. If you have questions, please find out. This is a new concept for a lot of people, and it's so important to educate yourself and just be able to ask. So we're here to help and be a resource in the prevention side and the Aguna side, wherever along the lines you or someone you know needs help. So to please feel totally comfortable reaching out. And even if we're not the right place, we'll help you get to the right place. That is fantastic. The last thing that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is to you, Keshet Star, what does it mean to make an impact? It means sticking with something when it's easy, when it's hard, when you're in the mood, when you're not, and just having the perseverance to keep with something in the long term. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Keshet. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Keshet or Aura, those links are in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. This is the third of a four-part series. I'll be releasing the last part next week on Monday. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this now so you don't miss it. And go back to listen to part one with activist and survivor Batya Reyes and part two with Dr. Shauna Friedman, the director of Shalom Task Force. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. 
The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.